We've been in a, a series on uh, discipleship. We've been looking at these rhythms that we teach and that we talk about at Central City Church. They're on our website. Um, uh, if you go to centralcity.co slash life together, they're a part of our membership class. Um, uh, we talk about them in a variety of different ways. But really, they're just answering the simple question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Like, if you, what is, on a practical level, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to take steps and be a follower of Jesus? So we just, there's lots of ways to think about that. There's a lot of answers to that. But we try to lay out, here's some really simple, you know, six rhythms. If you do these things on a regular basis, you're going to find your, your life changed. Not only your life, but the lives around you as well as the world. Like, this is, these are good things to do. And so we've talked about so far growing spiritually, what it means to be in community, what it means to show up to worship, what it means to spend time in Scripture and prayer you know, growing your spiritual life. We had talked about reaching intentionally. Alyssa did a sermon a couple weeks ago about what it means to share our faith with the rest of the world. And there's ways that that has been talked about and done that is very harmful. I know some of you come from places where, you know, you didn't have a great experience, where a lot of pressure was put on you. But, but, the, but um, and so there's some baggage. We've gotten some feedback even around that. But the reality is, is we love Jesus, and Jesus is like, I still am convinced that, that every person's life would be better off if they knew who Jesus was. And I, I remain convinced by that. And I, you'll find that I'm not a typically very pushy person, but I do try to live my faith in the public square. I try to live my faith and be in relationship with people who aren't Christians. And, and because of my context and your context in America, most of evangelism is actually changing people's perspectives of Christians before they can even understand who Jesus is because there's so much baggage there. And so anytime I'm meeting with somebody who isn't a Christian who, you know, becomes, you know, like, oh, man, I, I, I haven't met a Christian like you, I feel like that's a win for evangelism because we've gotten one step closer to overcoming some of the barriers in our culture. Um, reaching intentionally. We talk about serving regularly. And uh, in order for us to continue to be a church, we need people who serve. And, man, so many servants showed up uh, yesterday and put so much time and energy, and uh, people make today happen. And when we get back into church and we're doing coffee and greeters, and we're going to need people to step up and serve. In fact, just along those lines, we are, we are going to be actively looking for somebody to lead our first impressions, which is greeters and uh, coffee and, and some of that stuff. We don't have anyone right now. And uh, in order for... You know, normal church to be a great experience. We're going to need to have somebody between now and the fall. So you can pray about that as well. Maybe that might be the way that you could get involved in the church is organizing our greeters and stuff. So um, that is a need that it, uh, needs to be served. Uh, but today we're going to talk about giving generously. Giving generously. And what I want to talk about more specifically, first I just want to say right out from the start, that this is also a topic that people have baggage about. Um, we live in an American culture where the church has abused money and power consistently. Um, we have pastors who make uh, a lot of money off of preaching things that I don't think the scripture teaches. Uh, prosperity gospels, a pandemic uh, throughout our throughout our culture, and it shows up in a lot of different ways. So, I, so there's some baggage there, but but I personally love talking about money. I love talking about giving. I'm a big fan of it. I'm a fan of it um, uh, for for more than just the fact that uh, the church is made possible because of it, but because myself, when in the process of giving, I find that my heart has changed, and that's what I want to talk about today. The ways in which giving is a spiritual discipline. The ways in which we, when we engage in a process of being generous, that it's actually one of the disciplines that can change you and help you grow in your faith, help you become the type of person that you want to become. It can be one of, in fact, I would say it becomes one of the best ways for you to grow in your relationship with God if it's done right. 
Giving is one of the disciplines. I mean, if you're thinking about growing in your faith and you're like, you know what, I'm already doing devotions, I'm showing up to church, and I just don't feel like I'm, I'm missing something, giving might be one of the things that you've been lacking. In the process of actually giving, we and our hearts begin to change. So I'm going to do that by looking at five different questions. I will say that I, I'm going to spend some time in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at five questions. I do have Matthew 6 printed out, and those questions are on it. If you didn't get one and you want one, Matt, ha- do you have some more, Matt? Oh, we're all, we're all out. So never mind. Just Google it. Matthew chapter 6. So it looks like a, a fair number of you got those. And uh, um, Matthew chapter 6. But here are the questions. You can write them down or put them in your phone if you want them. We're going we're gonna to ask these five questions to kind of help us give in a way that actually will help us grow in our faith. Here's the first one. What is your motivation? The second question, what do you value? The third question, what is your aim? In other words, what, what is your goal? What are you working towards in life? The fourth one, what, where is your loyalty? Where is your loyalty? And the fifth one, what are you afraid of? I do hate ending sentences in a preposition. I know you're not supposed to, but I couldn't find a better way to ask that. But what are you, what are you afraid of? So what is your motivation? What do you value? What is your aim? Where is your loyalty? And what are you afraid of? That's what we're going to look at. So look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is a part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a beautiful collection of Jesus' teachings. Some, some of those profound ideas in the world can be found in the Sermon on the Mount. That's 5, 6, I think 7. Um, beautiful. We're going to look at just chapter 6, most of it. And we're going to start with verse 1. And we're going to look at what the question, what is your motivation? So here's what Jesus says, teaching to people, probably in a similar setting to this, although no plastic chairs, they'd be like on the ground, but very similar setting. Uh, it's Sermon on the Mount. So he actually, he'd be up on the high spot uh, preaching down towards people so they could all hear him without speakers. So you can kind of feel like, you know, and locusts were a thing too. John the Baptist was a big fan of them, it turns out. Um, so this is very, very biblical experience right now. So he's preaching and here's what he says. Verse 1. Matthew chapter 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Tell, truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So religious people of that time, this isn't true anymore, of course, but back then religious people would give in such a way that they would get kind of attention and credit for it. They weren't, in other words, they weren't really motivated by the needs of the poor. They just wanted to make sure people saw them give to the poor and, and, and the way in which that helped their public relations, their PR. And so they would give in such a way that they would, you know, have a parade. I'm giving to the poor. In other words, their motivation was to get that prestige, those accolades. Now, people give for a lot of different reasons. And quite frankly, some of those reasons are self-serving. You know, you can give because of um, guilt. The church especially is good at laying on guilt. You might feel a little guilty today. My apologies. But I don't think you should give because of guilt. 
But that you can kind of give because you want to feel better and you feel guilty. You can give because you want the prestige or you can give because you want the publicity. I think of an article written by this guy. Um, I don't know if it's true, but it's an interesting thought. He says, you know, charities in America is the greatest scam of America because all of these billionaires give all of this money and they get hotels. Or, you know, they get like hospitals named after them. And the benefit of their gift is so much bigger than the actual gift. Like they get so much public relations, so much news coverage. Their name is literally plastered on a building that everyone can see for you know generations and they make all of like the the value of that is so much more than than their actual gift and then on top of that they take take a tax deduction on their gift and so he was just in this article uh talking about it's it, and i forget the guy's name but he's the guy who um has a starting wage at his company at uh he owns an internet company but he starts his starting wage is seventy thousand. like he just he's a big fan of just paying people living wage and then he wrote this article about the scam of giving and it's true like we give for a lot of different reasons and, and the question you have to ask ourselves all of us, is why? And what are you getting out of it? Here's what I want to suggest to you. You are going to get more out of giving if you don't give to get something out of it. And I, that's, that's pretty clever, right? You're going to get more. I came up with this. I'm pretty happy with it. You're going to get more out of giving if you don't give to get something out of it. It's clever, but it's actually absolutely true. You're going to get more out of giving if you, if you don't give to get something out of it. And there's so many ways in which we can kind of have these, un, these hidden emotions. And this is what I love about Sermon on the Mount. This is what I love about Jesus. Is he cuts through all of that BS. He's like, no, what's really going on in your heart? That's what you're going to find as we get into Matthew chapter 6. It's all about your heart. What is, what's really going on in the service? What's your motivation? I've heard, I haven't been around people who give to a church just so, so they can have a voice in it, you know? It becomes about power. People give so they can get their name on something. It becomes about PR. Why do you give? We've got to stop and ask ourselves, what's the motivation? Going on, uh, we're going to skip a couple of paragraphs. He says the same thing applies to prayer and to fasting. We're not talking about prayer and fasting, but the same principle applies. Why do you pray? Why do you fast? And do you do it just to be seen by other people? We're going to jump over those verses, but the same logic applies to them. We're going to go to verse 19 where it says this. He picks up and he starts talking about money again. He says, the question that we're going to look at is what do you value? Verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. I was reading this, and I was like, you know what, this, this is a great passage, but I almost like it's not relevant anymore. We've gotten really good at controlling those things, haven't we? Controlling moth and rust and thieves, like those aren't daily concerns. You got to remember in the, the original context, they were living in, you know, um, a variety of houses. There was no necessarily sophisticated locks. There was no security gates. There was you know, tents or stone buildings. There was no glass on the windows. So, so the ability for things to survive, moss and rust and, and thieves, like this was a serious concern. And, and, and so he's like, hey, you know what? These things could go at any point. Now, we've become pretty good. Things are still fleeting, but we've, you know, it is not unreasonable for us to spend most of our lives holding on to the same material stuff. We've gotten really good at protecting these things. So this, this passage has a little bit less kick to it. Because we've built up our kingdoms that are very good at sustaining our material things. Other than the fact that most of our stuff is not built to last that long, that's a different conversation. He says, instead of doing that, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what he's saying. 
You can't trick your heart. You can't trick your heart into something. You can't put all of your attention and all of your money and all of your resources over here and then try to tell your heart you should care about this over here. You can't put all your money into building up your house and into your beautiful car. And you know, like, you know, just all of your finances over here and then say, but I really do care for the poor. Do you hear what I'm saying? You, you can't trick your heart. He says, no, no, no. Where your treasure is is going to be where your heart is. That's how it works. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. Your heart is going to follow your treasure. Now, a lot of times we think, well, what I care about, that's where I put my money. No, it doesn't work like that. Scripture says, no, where you put your money, where you put your treasure, that's actually where your heart's going to follow. So a couple of questions. Do you value your relationship with God? That's the first question. The second one is, do you value the things that God values? So the first one is, do you value your relationship with God? If so, how much, you know? If you, if you had to put a, a price tag on your relationship with God, what would it be worth to you? The biblical answer to that question comes in two forms. There's the theological answer and the practical answer. The theological answer is this. What is your relationship with God, salvation, all the things that God gives us, what is that worth to you? What's the price tag? And the answer is more than you can pay. Everything. Oh, throughout Scripture. Oh, this is, this is worth more than anything. I mean, this is worth more than everything you have. The psalmist is like, if I could just spend one day in your presence, God, I would be worth it. Like, it's worth more than anything else I have in my entire life. Jesus goes as far as saying even more than your family. He talks about hating, you know, uh, your, your family, which is just hyperbole for saying, like, no, your relationship with God is even worth more than that. That's the theological answer. It's not very practical. The answer is everything, more than you've got. The practical answer, according to Scripture, is 10%. <laughs> The theological answer is like everything. You're like, well, how do I do that? And God's like, all right, well, 10%, that'll be just like a nice placeholder for everything, which is how the tithe was rep- represented. It wasn't, it wasn't this thing where you like, you got to pay your taxes. No, it was a, it was a part of a covenant. It was, it meant something bigger than it, what it was. So you gave 10% as a, as a sign of participating in God's community. And then anything above 10% is what we call generosity. I, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm, look, this is just what Bible teaches. I don't know what to tell you. The 10% is the starting place. One, my, my, my pastor who, uh, um, from our parent church, Paul Reisler, he talks about 10% the tithe as training wheels. You, you start at 10% and that helps you learn how to ride your bike. You know, you get better at giving. Giving is a spiritual discipline that changes your life. You become really generous and the 10% is just the training wheels. And beyond that, you start, okay, now I get it. Now I'm getting, I'm getting better at this. This is, this is making sense. Training wheels. Malachi 3, 8 through 9, I won't read it for you, but the prophet talks about the tithe as if you're not giving it, it's like stealing from God. It's already God's. It's already God's. So the first thing is, you know, what do you value relationship with God? The second one is, do you value things God values? And, and, and I, th- I think, you know, things like compassion, justice, things that we're talking about, there's lots of other ways to give towards that, the poor, the marginalized, investing in discipleship. Think about it like this. Let's say that you win the Vaximillion, all right? Now, I know you signed up. I signed up. I don't even gamble. So let's say you win the Vaximillion, and, and if you signed up, surely you've thought about what you're going to do with it, right? You've got a plan. Well, maybe a little. I mean, you've, if you haven't thought about it, you know, that's okay. Uh, you don't have to, but, but there's a good chance you have. Uh, based on that, based on how you've thought about it, if you were to win, 
What, is, what does that say about your current state of your heart? It's a hard question. Honest question. If, if where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be, what, what does that say about your current state? You could do the same thing with your budget, with all of these things. Now, I'm not interested in shame or guilt. I don't think you should beat yourself up. I don't think you should feel bad. I don't think it's helpful. But I'm also not interested in being easy on us. Money impacts and controls our entire society and most of our lives. It does. And it is a major barrier for people to have the life that God wants for them to have. So we have to, you know, take this seriously. We, we have to do the hard, there's hard work that needs to be done here. It's just, uh, it just has to happen. And it's not really even about the money. The money, what, what you treasure, reveals your heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's what your heart, that's, that, it's your heart that God's after. In a theological sense, God doesn't want your money. God wants your heart. And that's just how much power our treasures have. So, next one, verse 22. What is your aim? Jesus goes on to say, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, this is a confusing verse. It's not very uh, evident. It's, you kind of got to dig into it. The NIV, I, I think, misses the point a little bit. There's two words here. It says if your eyes are healthy or if your eyes are unhealthy. And in the Greek, they don't, they, that's an interpretation of the Greek word. And this might be a little bit better. Um, the word healthy really kind of means the not double-minded, so single-minded. It's, it's this idea that if, it's this idea that when you have your eyes, you go after what you look at, you know, like where your treasure is, what you're pointed at, what your, where your attention is, what your goal is, what you're looking at, that's where you head. And so if you have a single purpose, a single goal, that's a good thing. Because now you're, you're not confused. You're headed in a direction. It's easier to walk in a straight line if you look at that tree and start walking. If I look at the ground and go, who knows where I'll end up. But if I look at the tree, I know that I can walk straight to the tree. The word unhealthy here means trouble, pain. It's most often translated evil. So he's basically saying if your vision is singular, that's a good thing. And if it's not... You're going to be a lot, of tra- a lot of trouble, a lot of pain, a lot of things. So um, the question becomes, what is that single point ahead of you? What is your aim? Because we're all walking towards something. What's the ultimate goal that trumps all other goals in your life? What are you focused on? What's that single point ahead of you? That leads us then to the next question. All right, move on. Oh, don't be mad at me. Verse 24, he says this. Because I know what some of you think. is like, well, I have a lot of goals. i got a lot of goals. Here's what Jesus says to that. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other. Either you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What's that far-off point that you're working towards in your life? The goal that actually impacts your decisions. You know what I'm talking about? And, uh, you know, like if that's, you know, the goal that when you've set it and you're actually changing your life because you want to go towards that goal. What is that goal? Now, here's the thing. If that goal has to do with wealth, 
comfort, pleasure, you know, any, you know, finances, if that goal has to do with that, and that's what you're working towards, and you're changing everything in your life, you know, you follow Dave Ramsey to the letter, if that's your goal, giving will be painful. It's just going to, it's going to hurt, right? Because you're like, it's keeping me from that goal. But if it's God, if God is who you're running towards, giving will not only be easier, it'll be necessary. Giving is one of the ways in which we run towards God. That you'll actually get closer to God and, and closer to the person that God wants you to become through the act of giving. See, giving frees us from the draw money has on us. And money has a powerful draw on our lives, huge amount of influence. I mean, it's, it, it, it comes out in so many facets of our life through marriage, you know, one of the major reasons for marital distress and all, just so many different ways money has pull on our lives. But giving frees us from that. It allows us to avoid that incredible draw towards consumerism, this constant need for more and bigger and newer and nicer. Money becomes, can become our master. And when it is, God isn't. Whereas generosity sets us free from the power of that money. So here's what I think. I believe, I honestly do, um, that people want to be generous. I think people want to be generous. I think, you know, all of us, you know, uh, want to be generous. And um, there are things that keep us from that. One of the big things I, I, I think that keeps us from being generous is fear. Fear of not having enough. You know, you got to take care of your life first, you know? Like, you've got to figure out your, your situation first. Fear keeps us from being sometimes generous. I can't afford to give. If I give, then I won't have enough for myself. I can barely take care of myself now. What if I don't have enough? Fear keeps us from being generous. And that's why I think Jesus ends this talk on money talking about something very important. In fact, Jesus spends most of his time on this passage and this topic. What are you afraid of? Verse 25, all the way through to the end of the chapter, just littered trying to answer this question. I'm going to read a lot of it. I won't share many thoughts because it speaks for itself. Here's what it says. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? This is a trick question, because I don't know if you know this, but worrying actually takes hours away from your life. Multiple studies have done this. I was trying to find a clean number to give you. I saw one study that says your life might be as much as three years shorter if you have excessive worrying or anxiety. Now, I'm, I've shared with you, I've struggled with anxiety, so like, I'm like, oof. I saw one study that's as much as like 10 years can be knocked off your life because of the spiraling effects of like heart problems and just a variety of things. So Jesus is like, will worrying add hours to your life? And scientists nowadays are like, no, it takes hours away from your life. Like you actually lose some hours if you're worrying so much. He goes on, can any of you, uh, uh, in 28, and why do you worry about clothes? See, the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? 
Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Pause there for a second. The same God who's saying, I want you to be generous, because I am generous. We become more like God when we become generous, because God is generous. The same God who's like, I, I, I need you to do this, is the same God who knows exactly what you need. God already knows what you need. And he's saying, y'all, I know what you need. One of the things you need is generosity. This is actually going to make your life better in ways you can't even begin to comprehend. But I also know all those other things you need as well. He goes on to say, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, this isn't meant to be taken chronologically, as if you can seek material things after you've sought, you know, uh, God's kingdom. You know, like, seek first God's kingdom, then you can go after these things. No, no, no. It means we should seek God's, the kingdom of God, God's will, and that's it. Anything else will fall into place if we do that one thing. That has to be our singular point in the future, God's will, God's kingdom in this earth. So he ends by saying, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble of its own. I do want to pause there. It's not like Jesus doesn't realize this is hard. And maybe you're here and what you're going through that doesn't, you know, this isn't the message you needed to hear today because that's not where you're at today. Maybe tomorrow would be the right message or yesterday, but what you're going through, your life, your struggles, your pain, what I don't know. Um... But Jesus here ends by saying, you know what, I, I'm asking you not to worry, but I also know that this is hard, that there is trouble, that today will bring you trouble, and you've got enough trouble today, and sometimes just getting through today is what you need to do. Jesus knows that, and I believe Jesus cares, and I, I want to be a community that cares as well. But one thing I do know for sure is that as our fear about having enough decreases, when we're able to figure that out and our fear of having enough and we all have our own little fears maybe that's not something you struggle with i know a lot of people do fears of not having enough enough time enough money and we just start living today you know and we just trust god in the moment as that fear of not having enough decreases our ability to be generous increases proportionately so finding that ability to trust god in the moment in the midst of life's sometimes troubling circumstances we find ourselves that we can be more generous in the moment. We can be people that God has called us to be. Scripture constantly reminds us that life is a gift. And that God is the giver of all good gifts. Over and over in Scripture, it talks about how giving is simply giving back what was already given to us. Old and New Testament. As we sit outside, as we look at creation and all that God has given us, as we think about all that we have, all that we can be thankful for, our family, our friends, our children, our parents, maybe all of those things that we're not thankful for, all of those hurts and pains. In fact, when we experience great loss, we're reminded on an even deeper level that life is a gift, don't we? We wouldn't hurt so bad if it wasn't. Life is a gift, and God is inviting us into being people who continue that cycle, who continue to give, who be generous, and in doing so, we become more like God. Let's pray.
God, we come before you and we give you thanks for being the model of what it means to be generous. Um, God, I know that this uh, life could be a little tricky sometimes, and I just think of those people in my heart and my mind, and maybe all of you who are listening can think about those who are just having a hard time right now. God, we lift them up to you. We ask that your spirit would minister to them, that you would enable us to be people who can minister as well, that we might be your hands and feet. We might be a listening ear. God, we know that you are good. That you know all that we have and all that you want from us and you're not asking us to give more than you've already given and you're not asking us to be more than you've created us to be and that you're able to walk with us and that you're able to change us, that you are good and you know what ails us and you know what we struggle with. So Holy Spirit, Counselor, lead us into all truth. Help us. Each individually. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, Amen. Mm-hmm.